The Law and Justice Party itself has used disinformation pretty extensively in order to sway election results and sway public opinion. And so when you look at Polish national security policy, it's very clear that disinformation is a threat, that Russia is a threat. But on the other hand, we have the ruling party using disinformation and tacitly endorsing it, which should sound familiar to every American listening right now. And so that is a, a scary conclusion for me. You know, you can have the best policy on paper in the world, but if you don't have recognition from the very top of government that this is a problem, you're not going to get anywhere fighting disinformation, foreign or domestic. And frankly, the vector doesn't matter to me. It's still threatening democracy. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 24th, 2020. After a week off, our Arbiters of Truth miniseries on disinformation is back. This week, Evelyn Dweck and I spoke to Nina Jankowitz, a disinformation fellow at the Wilson Center, about her new book, How to Lose the Information War, Russia, Fake News, and the Future of Conflict. The book chronicles Nina's journey around Europe, tracing down how information operations spearheaded by Russia have played out in countries in the former Soviet bloc, from Georgia to the Czech Republic. What do these case studies reveal about disinformation and how best to counter it? And how many of these lessons can be extrapolated to the United States? How should we understand the role of locals who get swept up in information operations, like the Americans who attended rallies in 2016 that were organized by a Russian troll farm? And what is an information war, anyway? It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 24th. Nina Jankowitz on how to lose the information war. Nina, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be with you guys. Yeah. So your your book is called How to Lose the Information War. I thought we would just start off with the most basic of questions. What do you mean by the information war? Like who <laughs> who who is fighting in the war and what are they fighting over? Yeah, this is kind of a contentious one because there are some people who think that it shouldn't be called an information war. Uh, I personally don't see that much kind of substance or politicization behind the term. It's a useful moniker because that's how a lot of people refer to it, right? The same as fake news, which is in the subtitle of the book, which I had a fight with my publisher about, but they were adamant that we keep it in there because it helps people know what the book is about. But broadly, if we're if we're going to say that we're in an information war, I think uh, there are a lot of combatants in the information war. It's not just about Russia, although the book focuses on Russia. Of course, we know that other adversaries are active in the information space now as well. And there is a domestic element to the information war as well. There are people who are happily using all of the loopholes that our digital age present in terms of political campaigning, in terms of lying and not being uh, held accountable for it. And certainly those domestic actors, I would argue, are just as, if not more important than the foreign ones. Okay, well, I don't want to start on an adversarial footing, but you did bring it up. So let's <laughs> talk about the framing of the war, I guess. And, and I'll, I'll put the argument how I've heard it, that sort of like militarizing the conversation about our information environment actually makes problems like disinformation operations worse because it creates exactly the kind of distrust of everything and sort of extreme apathy that the bad actors themselves are trying to create. What do you what do you make of that argument? Like, is that in fact what the bad actors are trying to do? And um, how do we sort of combat that uh, effect of militarization? 
Yeah. So I definitely am a person who thinks that we shouldn't securitize this too much. And that's one of the main theses of the book that, you know, this has been the realm of national security apparatuses around the world, but really we need to bring in the human element. Now, all of that being said, it is not a secret that actors like Russia and China use disinformation as part of not only their military doctrine, but their foreign policy doctrine. And I think it's important to kind of recognize that, that this is a, a constant footing that they are on, um, and we need to organize our resources in response to that. Whether or not we call it a war, I think, should not dictate how we frame that response. Um, I just think it, it does communicate the urgency of the issue. And when you look at nations like Finland or Sweden or certainly Ukraine, which does have a hot war going on, these nations that understand the threat and treat it as something that is persistent and something that actually is very serious are ones that have understood the full full coterie of responses, if you will. It's not just about pushing back in cyberspace. It is not just about exacting responses in the diplomatic realm. It's also about shoring up defenses uh, on the home front. And I think that's really, really important. And it, you know, heightens people's vigilance in a way uh, that I think we need. You know, the core of the argument of the book is is about creating a, an environment where people have the tools that they need to navigate today's information flows. And part of that is a heightened awareness that you can't trust everything that you read online. And there needs to be some sort of reflex in every human being, just like we know not to trust, you know, the Nigerian prince who's emailing us trying to give us a million dollars or the person who's scamming us on the phone trying to get our social security number. We need those same reflexes for the internet. And if discussing it as a war, framing it as a, as a war is, uh, is the way that we get there, then I'm, I'm okay with that, as long as we include those human responses. Well, first off, I just have to say I'm devastated to hear that my investment in this Nigerian prince's well-being isn't going to turn out well. <laughs> oh no, <Quinta>. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you you mentioned Ukraine, uh, you mentioned Finland as well, which is isn't in the book. But I, I wanted to talk about how the book is structured, which is you look at these sort of different case studies across a handful of different countries in Europe of Russian influence operations. So you go through um, Estonia. Uh, where you describe what you sort of call a, a beta version of Russia influence operations, Georgia, um, where there's a mix of kinetic warfare and disinformation, Poland, which is a, an interesting sort of combination of citizens who consider themselves inoculated to Russian interference, but are nevertheless vulnerable. Then you look at Russia's attempts to sort of exploit existing social fissures in a 2016 Dutch referendum on Ukraine. And then you close by going to the Czech Republic and looking at how the Republic sets up a domestic center dedicated to addressing influence. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot there in these different case studies. I'm curious, which of these sort of made you the most optimistic uh, that's pretty easy, actually. I think Estonia makes me the most optimistic. Um, they obviously have a smaller population. They have the benefit of hindsight. You know, we start the chapter in 2007, and even a little bit before that, we're looking at things, you know, from 2005, integration into the EU and NATO. I think Estonia has it right. Um, there have been some issues recently with more populists getting elected to parliament in Estonia. But still, if you look at the integration data between ethnic Russians and ethnic Estonians, which is obviously the biggest cleavage that an outside 
actor like Russia could manipulate in Estonia, uh, it's going in the right direction. And again, I think the Estonians are pretty clear eyed about, you know, this is a this is a threat not only uh, in the kinetic sphere for them, but they have cyber defenses that they've built up over time. The NATO Cyber Center of Excellence is headquartered in Tallinn. And they're widely, you know, referred to as some of the best in cybersecurity. They created Skype. Uh, they vote by uh, using ID cards uh, or now even SIM IDs that they use in their in their phones, SIM card IDs. So they're able to vote remotely during the pandemic. You know, they weren't really affected uh, the same way in terms of the effect on on government services that many countries were because they do so much online. And it's all very secure. They've never had any major breaches. Even in 2007, this was a DDoS attack that took down systems, but no data was left unsecure. So they're very good on that point. And they're also investing in, in citizens in a way that I think is really smart. So they're building up Russian language media. They are investing in education for the Russian-speaking population in expanding career opportunities. One thing that they did that I really love is they've even moved government apparatuses from Tallinn to Narva, which is where a lot of Russians live, for short periods of time, like sabbaticals. And I just like to think about what that would look like in the United States, like if the national security staff for a week or a month moved to Des Moines, or even, you know, Department of State. Uh, and and people just went there and, and listened to the concerns and issues uh, of of people in America's heartland. I mean, it's a it's a gesture more than anything, but it was received really well by the Russians in, in Narva. So, I think that's a really interesting case study. Obviously, much harder to replicate uh, in the United States and in, in a country that has so many societal fissures uh, and is much much larger. But if plucky Estonia can do it, I think that, you know, we should be considering many similar provisions in our own counter disinformation strategy. And so the story you tell about Estonia in your chapter is about how all these tensions that you mentioned about disinformation and the sort of dynamics between ethnic Russians and Estonia and ethnic Estonians gets kicked up in this sort of bizarre, perhaps to American ears, episode that has to do with moving a statue of a soldier Mm -hmm. in 2007. Just walk us through that story, because I find it fascinating. Yeah, and I actually don't think it's that bizarre for this kind of current climate that we're in in the United States. It it should ring true to many Americans, in my opinion. But so in in downtown Tallinn in in 2007, there was this statue, the Bronze Soldier, and it's a very kind of handsome, buff-looking guy. It was supposedly modeled off an Estonian boxer in the Soviet era. And he stood atop kind of a tomb to the unknown soldier. Three uh, Soviet soldiers were buried there. And the whole monument basically celebrated the Soviet victory in World War II and the pushing out of the Nazis from Tallinn, the the liberation of Tallinn, which many Estonians will tell you is is kind of nonsense. Uh, Tallinn was liberated, the Nazis left, and the Soviets came in and filled the vacuum, right? And of course, many Estonians suffered under Soviet occupation. Uh, They were sent away to gulags, and there was, of course, a lot of political repression. So Uh, In 2007, when this new government came in, they decided that the statue had to go, not only for those kind of difficult political reasons, but because it had become a public safety flashpoint. Uh, There were a lot of folks who were nostalgic for the Soviet Union who would gather there on Soviet red letter days like May Day or Victory Day. And uh, inevitably, they would meet some Estonian nationalists there. And it was getting to be this real threat to public safety. So they said, "Okay." 
we're not going to completely obliterate the statue. It's not going to go live, you know, where all the busts of Stalin and Lenin live. We're going to move it to uh, a Soviet, what used to be a Soviet war cemetery on the outskirts of Tallinn, but now had just become a military cemetery. And when I say outskirts of Tallinn, this is a very small city. So it's about 10 minutes from the center. And Russia used this decision to move the statue basically as a an inflection point for all of the grievances that ethnic Russians had had over over the decades. The fact that they didn't have the same access to education, the fact that many of them couldn't even vote in independent Estonia because they couldn't pass an Estonian language exam, which was part of the citizenship question. And that really Russians felt like second class citizens. And so Russia, through the Russian language media that was dominant among ethnic Russians in Estonia, said, you know, this is just another affront to you ethnic Russians living in Estonia. Uh, you should demand your rights. And essentially what became of this was a large riot, which in Tallinn is a pretty significant thing. Uh, it's a quiet, fairly sleepy city. People are really polite. And this riot destroyed parts of the medieval downtown. Uh, you look at videos from it, it looks nothing like what it looks like today. I mean, especially in, on any given day, it's just a peaceful, beautiful city. Um, and it really shook Tallinn to its core. And of course, in addition to this stuff that played out in, in person, where you saw Russian TV crews following around the protesters, trying to kind of instigate them into action. There was also this DDoS attack that was paired with the riots, which brought down Estonian press, parts of the Estonian government, and several banks. Um, and at that time, Estonia was doing all of its banking on, on online anyway, already. So it was a pretty significant issue. And that was kind of the alarm bell for the West that this sort of behavior this hybrid threat could be a problem in the future. And the Estonians went around kind of ringing that alarm bell for many years. And it wasn't really until the Ukraine crisis that the Western nations started to take Estonia seriously. So tell us about the Ukraine crisis then. I think we're, we're jumping around a little in, in the different chapters, but I think, as you say, it's an important inflection point for listeners to understand. Yeah, so I chose to focus on a fairly less well-known uh, incident in kind of the, the large mass of Ukraine disinformation that exists. Um, obviously, in 2013-2014, many, many Ukrainians went out on the streets of cities around Ukraine, but notably the capital, Kyiv, to protest the fact that the president, then-president, Viktor Yanukovych, reneged on his uh, promise to sign an association agreement with the European Union. This led to, eventually, the annexation of Crimea and the occupation of parts of the east of Ukraine, the Donbass. And it was also an influx of disinformation. It brought about, really, I think, the, the first instances of Western recognition of this problem in recent times and understanding that social media could be used as a weapon of war. And it was in Ukraine being used as a weapon of war. There uh, are, you know, really sad stories of soldiers on the front lines being sent targeted text messages that threatened their families or encouraged them to desert. Uh, there are rumors that caused, you know, significant violent events during uh, the protests. So it, it really does have consequences, lest people think this is all just about, you know, funny memes, which I know the listeners of your podcast don't think, but just putting it on the record. So fast forward a couple of years to 2016, uh, the revolution happens, a new government is in place, and they are working toward that association agreement still. It's taken them a couple of years to, to hammer it out and meet the requirements. 
but they're on the verge of getting it ratified by the European Union. And one of the last countries to ratify it in their domestic parliament is the Netherlands, which is famously quite Eurosceptic. Uh, they don't want EU regulations dealing with all of the fun things they enjoy in the Netherlands. And of course, adding uh, even more complexity to this case is the fact that in 2014, MH17, the Malaysian airliner that was downed by Russian separatists in Ukraine, held a lot of Dutch citizens because it had originated in Amsterdam. So there was a lot of discomfort around that. Uh, Russia very successfully, of course, planted a lot of disinformation about how the airliner was downed, who was responsible. And here was this moment for Russia where the Ukrainian Association Agreement came up for a vote in Parliament, and it just so happened that at the same time, in Dutch Parliament, a new measure was passed that allowed the Dutch to bring any measure in Parliament up for a referendum. And this was a perfect a perfect moment, not only for the fringes of Dutch politics, but again, for the Russians. So both the left and the right in Dutch politics decided, okay, we're going to put this Ukraine issue up for a vote because this is ridiculous. We don't want corrupt Ukraine, you know, influencing our politics. We don't want any more members of the EU. And plus Ukraine, you know, is dangerous. We don't want to be involved in securitizing Ukraine. Of course, the association agreement is an economic agreement, has nothing to do with security. So the Dutch wouldn't have been responsible for that, but plenty of fodder for disinformation there. And for, for Russia, this was kind of a dual opportunity, undermining both, you know, Ukraine's support in the Euro-Atlantic community, but also undermining European Union unity at the same time. And what happened after that was quite a quite a sad story. So Ukraine, of course, uh, is, is not nearly as, you know, well endowed as some European countries. It tried its best to push back on this disinformation as the referendum neared. Uh, but it was it was really difficult because Russia was coming at it from all sides. You know, they used R RT and Sputnik, the overt propaganda outlets to influence uh, the discourse in the Netherlands. And you can kind of track how some of these narratives jumped from RT and Sputnik to uh, fringy Dutch blogs and then were talked about in the mainstream Dutch media. They actually had fake Ukrainians going around to town halls in the Netherlands, pretending to be from Ukraine, uh, seeding disinformation about what was going on in Ukraine, even though these people were either Russian or hadn't been to Ukraine in many, many years, uh, and in fact had been living in the Netherlands, enjoying you know EU citizenship for all of that time. And in addition to that, they also put out some fake videos that claimed that Ukrainians would commit acts of violence in the Netherlands if the referendum were to fail. And again, Ukraine tried its best to mount like a, a positive PR campaign uh, in response, but it just could not get legs. And in fact, one of my colleagues at the foreign ministry, uh, when I was serving as a Fulbright kind of communications advisor there in 2016 and 2017, told me that she thought that their agitation on behalf of Ukraine actually drove more people out to the referendum, which made it carry more weight in parliament and uh, essentially got them above the 30% threshold that was needed in order to make the referendum binding. Ukraine eventually found a diplomatic exit to all of this. But yeah, it, it just goes to show that, you know, sometimes we hear people say, 
oh, you know, NATO or the EU or the United States and our democracy. We just need to convince people that we matter. We just need to convince people that there is a new narrative that they should buy into for all of this. But disinformation runs on these very entrenched beliefs. In this case, the Dutch distrust of Ukraine and distrust of the European Union. And that's something that's really hard to counter with just a good story. And I think Ukraine learned that the hard way. Okay, so that's a perfect transition to me reprising my favorite role as Debbie Downer. Um, if, <laughs> if Estonia made you the sort of most optimistic and you think provides a good roadmap to solutions, uh, which are the case studies that you look at sort of makes you the, the most pessimistic as a comparative lesson? Um, and I guess maybe to try and phrase it more positively, what, what's the best learning opportunity that we can gain from the case studies that, that you looked at? Hmm. Okay. So probably two different answers there. The most pessimistic, I'm definitely most pessimistic about Poland right now. So I am partially Polish. And every time I go to Poland, uh, usually I, I feel... I feel some pride in how far Poland has come. I, I totally nerd out about Polish politics and, you know, the role of the solidarity movement in, in bringing down communism, blah, blah, blah. Um, but unfortunately, over the past several years since the Law and Justice Party has been in power in Poland, not only have we seen, you know, democratic backsliding, but we've also seen a degradation of the information space. And I didn't know when I was pitching this book around and planning my research that Poland was going to be such a, a great contrast, or not even contrast, it's, it, it almost is a similar situation to what's going on in the United States. And that really shocked me as I was doing the research for the book. So uh, brief primer on, on what's been going on with law and justice. They have you know, taken over essentially the state-run media in Poland that used to be a good and reliable public broadcaster. And while Poland understands the Russian threat, uh, the Law and Justice Party itself has used disinformation pretty extensively in order to sway election results and sway public opinion. And so when you look at Polish national security policy, it's very clear that disinformation is a threat, that Russia is a threat. But on the other hand, we have the ruling party using disinformation and tacitly endorsing it, which should sound familiar to every American listening right now. And so that is a, a scary conclusion for me. You know, you can have the best policy on paper in the world, but if you don't have recognition from the very top of government that this is a problem, you're not going to get anywhere fighting disinformation, foreign or domestic. And frankly, the vector doesn't matter to me. It's still threatening democracy. So... Womp womp. Uh, that is, <laughs> that's Poland. Um, yeah. Can, can I ask one question about Poland before yeah, I move sure. on? Yeah. So just, I want to just sort of put on my, my devil's advocate outfit for a moment. As you say, the, the story of Poland recently has been sort of the story of democratic backsliding with everything that law and justice has done to kind of erode the democratic foundations of the country in terms of the judiciary, the free press, all that. So how how much is Poland a story about you know the rise of authoritarianism and how much of it is a story about disinformation? Like how should we understand those two different factors? Mm. Yeah, I think they kind of go hand in hand. I guess the point that I'm trying to make with the Poland chapter is that these democratic institutions and the health of, of these democratic institutions is directly related to how 
big of an effect disinformation has in a democracy. And that's why I think if you look again, not to keep bringing up our, our Nordic friends all the time, but if you look at places like, like Sweden, um, you know, the trust in institutions there is, is fairly high. Um, and that's plummeted in places like Poland o- over recent years. So yeah, I think the, the fact that those democratic institutions aren't healthy, the fact that, you know, law and justice has taken a hatchet to the free press in Poland and to protest rights and to the judiciary. All of that means that there is a greater vulnerability for disinformation to flourish. Okay, so give us some hope then. What's the best learning opportunity that you looked at? Okay, so I think this is maybe the only time I've actually talked about this this chapter uh, because it's too wonky for everybody else, but Czech Republic. Yes, we love the wonks. This is great. <laughs> Bring it. <laughs> Um, you've already kind of given an overview of, of what it's about, but so Czech Republic is really interesting because they they never had uh, as bad of a disinformation problem as some of the other countries in the book that I, I detail, but they were the home of one of the first domestic counter disinformation units. It's the Center Against Terrorism and Hybrid Threats. Um, and I think this is a great learning opportunity because it shows that the Band-Aid effect is very real. So we tend to think, you know, oh, we can just create an institution and that will solve all the problems that, you know, disinformation encompasses that are very, very varied and deal with different parts of society, different parts of government. We'll just create this one thing and everything's going to be better. And the Czech Republic kind of shows how difficult that is. So they housed this center in their Ministry of Interior, because a lot of the disinformation that they were seeing was dealing with immigration-related issues. Uh, There are some pretty uh, widespread anti-Muslim, anti-migrant sentiments in the Czech Republic. And so that's kind of how they couched it policy-wise in order to make it palatable for a country that didn't necessarily want to tackle the disinformation thing without that lens on it. And ultimately, that was, uh, I would say, a detriment to them being able to carry out their mission. They ended up only issuing two or three fact checks during the presidential election in 2018, because the president, the incumbent, Zeman, uh, you know, was the one sharing a lot of the anti-migrant sentiments and they weren't going to fact check the their boss, basically. So good learning experience. You know, government probably shouldn't be fact checking to begin with. And we've seen this repeat in a couple of other instances in other countries as well, including uh, the EU External Action Service itself. And ultimately, I think uh, it shows that you can't just make disinformation the responsibility of one tiny sliver of government. It really needs to be, and I know everybody's going to groan when I say this, it needs to be whole of government. We need to create the structures necessary that, you know, not only the, in this case, the Ministry of Interior, but their Ministry of Education and their Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and also perhaps the Ministry of Energy, the Ministry of Culture, all of those need to feed in to the solution. Um, And certainly we've not seen that in the United States yet. And I'm hoping that once there is political will, government will truly organize itself that way uh, and not just securitize this problem because we need to have, we need to think of it as as something that is is happening here, not something that's being done to us, um, but something that in some ways we we are allowing to happen uh, and we need to structure our response that way as well. Yeah, I got to say, I, I found this chapter fascinating, um, exactly for, for the reasons that you say that the the development and sort of struggles of this center are really, really interesting. And one of the things that, that struck me as you write about how the center got 
a lot of fanfare in the sort of international press when it launched. Like, you know, the Czech Republic is taking on disinformation. <laughs> and then it, you know, as you say, they sort of struggle to find their footing a little bit. I'm just curious, you know, you've talked about how it struggled domestically. Do you think that the the international press and the community of people who work on disinformation sort of misread the room on the issue? And I mean, do you think that that people have learned from the way that the center has struggled? I hope so. I think there are definitely some people who will still defend it to the death and defend other organizations that have very narrow mandates, perhaps ones that are, you know, engaged in fact checking, which is a part of the solution, right, but can't be the whole thing. There there still is a lot of I would say acrimony surrounding criticism of these organizations though. Sometimes if you criticize them, you are seen as part of the problem, which I think is insane and we need to stop. We're all on the same side, right? But we just want things to work better. And yeah, you know, 2017 was a different time. Uh, We were still pretty close to the Ukraine conflict at that time. There was a a belief that things like fact-checking and these organizations that could be band-aids on the problem would actually amount to some sea change in the way governments were thinking about the problem. And and unfortunately, I think time has, has proven them wrong. That being said, I don't hear a lot of people walking around saying, you know, let's invest more in fact-checking operations. Governments should be involved in that. Uh, let's just create a new thing. I think there's a lot of more introspective thinking about how we can use existing structures uh, to achieve this goal. And I'm happy about that. Now, the only thing we're missing is the political will necessary to actually, you know, move the bureaucratic mountains we need in order to actually get going on it. And here in the United States, as, as I know you both well know, uh, we have a bunch of, you know, disparate organizations in the federal government, little islands that uh, are, are addressing this problem, doing their best, but are undermined by the lack of uh, recognition from the top and the lack of grand strategy of how we're going to do this. Okay, so I want to take you back to something you mentioned right at the start, um, which I think is really interesting. So your book focuses on a specific kind of foreign influence operation, namely Russian, but increasingly we're seeing, as you said, uh, more and more domestic actors engaging in this kind of stuff. And, you know, the Washington Post, for example, recently ran a big story about activities by the Republican group Turning Points USA, which was paying young people to post particular language, attacking mail-in voting and playing down the risk about uh, coronavirus. So how much do you think the actor themselves matters? Like, should our response or concern be different if it's, you know, even a different foreign state like China instead of Russia, or if it's domestic instead of foreign? How do you think about the relationship between those different threats? Yeah, I, I that's a really an increasingly important point, I think, especially as we're seeing actors like Russia adapt their tactics and using more information laundering rather than, you know, inorganic amplification like we saw in 2016. I personally think that we should not treat disinformation any differently, whether it's coming from China, Russia, or from within the House. And I know that's going to make a lot of Americans skin crawl because of First Amendment issues. I'm not saying that, you know, there should be laws against disinformation. In fact, countries like Singapore, uh, Ukraine has a draft law about this right now. I, I don't think that that is democratic. We need to, you know, ground all of this stuff in democratic and human rights based thinking. But that being said, ultimately, the, the things like the tur- Turning Point USA article that you've just mentioned, Evelyn, that is not, it's not democratic, and it's not equitable. And frankly, 
there need to be, especially around elections, laws that are, you know, threat agnostic, actor agnostic in terms of how we deal with this. And I think we've been asleep at the wheel for too long. The fact that the Honest Ads Act isn't passed, not that that is going to solve all of our problems, but it's like the lowest hanging fruit in the disinformation space, right? And it's still not passed. There's a lot of more simple fixes that I think we could get to uh, that could, you know, return the voice to people who have been drowned out by these domestic disinformation operations, um, or at least move us in that direction. And and unfortunately, this issue has become so politicized that uh, that we can't seem to get there. Um, and that's something that, you know, I'm incredibly sad about as we barrel toward November 3rd. Yeah, I don't even think of it as low-hanging fruit. I feel of it's like fruit just sitting on the ground waiting to be picked <laughs> up and no one's doing anything about it. Gradually um, rotting. Yeah, like exactly. Um, I, I, it strikes me that one of the nice things about or one of the problems that it solves being actor agnostic as well is that you know increasingly these things are intermixed as well. It's not like they are in isolation. They are often in, in relationship with each other and getting uh, mixed up together. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between sort of inauthentic Russian content like you explore in your book and authentic communities and locals that get swept up along with that and uh, maybe potentially how show tunes come into that. (laughs) Okay, good. I'm glad you brought that up. Sure. So, uh, man, this is increasingly worrisome to me ahead of ahead of 2020, um, especially as local groups like Facebook groups closed and secret Facebook groups are being brought into this. But bringing it back to the show tunes example. So in my free time, I do musical theater or I used to. I don't anymore. Clearly, theater is uh, is not happening right now. And so I have a lot of theater friends on Facebook. They do all sort of crazy things. I was in Ukraine in 2017 uh, when I, I came across an ad for a musical theater protest. I was headed home in a few weeks, so maybe that's why Facebook sent it to me. I'm not not entirely sure why I was targeted with it. But it was folks gathering outside of the White House to sing songs from Les Miserables uh, that were parodies of, of the musical, obviously, demanding the impeachment of President Trump. Uh, and I thought, haha, this is so funny. Theater people are, you know, getting their moment in the protest spotlight because at that point, you know, there were uh, doctors and lawyers protesting and theater people wanted their piece of the pie as well. Um, so I filed that away as, as kind of a comical moment. And a year-ish later, year and a half later, I got off a plane and my inbox was full of chatter about a criminal complaint that had been unsealed that shed light onto some of the IRA, the Internet Research Agency's activities in the 2016 election and beyond. And, uh, and one of those activities was buying ads for a protest outside of the White House where people sang songs from Les Mis. And I was like, oh no, this is that protest that I I remember. So I got in touch with the organizers. Uh, The event had been deleted from Facebook, but I was able to find some evidence on on YouTube. And there was a little bit of press coverage of it as well, including on a local theater blog. (laughs) Um, And I I wrote to this this group that had been organizing a bunch of different protests. And I said, hey, did you guys know that you're, you're named in this criminal complaint? I mean, you're referred to as Organization One, but it's you guys and you... Uh, apparently, the Internet Research Agency purchased ads for you. 
And the, uh, the organizer wrote back to me and said, holy shit, thank you for bringing this to our attention. Um, and I met with him and he had no idea that he and his group had been interfacing with anybody from the IRA. They basically wrote to him and said, hey, you know, we've got some money in our ad account. Can we give it to you guys? And the organizer's response was like, yeah, as long as you're not politicians for killing puppies, we are happy to, uh, to take your money and reach more people. And it was one of the more successful protest actions that this group took. And I think it's important to understand how this all went down, because not only was this after the election, right? We like to think of elections as the end point for disinformation operations, but actually they're the inflection point. So this is seven months after, more than seven months, nine months after the election, uh, July 4th, 2017. But uh, it was using a liberal group. So often I think there's a misconception that, you know, Russia in particular just supports the GOP, just supports President Trump, but it also tries to uh, inflame tensions wherever possible. And using this local protest group meant that Russia didn't have to really put out the resources that it does for some other things. There was already a protest happening. It was already going to create some discord, although this particular protest was kind of fun, in my opinion. But uh, it loves to pit people against each other. And if there was going to be a protest about, you know, show tunes and and outside of uh, the White House on July 4th, there are definitely other protests that uh, that Russia has been supporting through advertising. And we know that there have been dueling protests, in fact, that where Russia has uh, set those folks up across the street from one another. They didn't attract nearly as many people as this one. But I, I think it's important, again, to note that it affects all sides of the political spectrum. You're not immune from it just because you're a Democrat. In fact, we've seen even more evidence of this where Russia has been so like targeting Sanders supporters. And, and, you know, the, the ultimate goal isn't necessarily to keep one candidate or, or another in office. It's to, to kind of make people distrust, create this discord and, you know, undermine the, the democratic process writ large. So just be on the lookout. I think this is happening more and more. You know, you might not get approached by somebody wanting to buy ads on behalf of your protest event, but you might see a bad actor, again, whether foreign or domestic, dropping a link into an active Facebook group that you're in and incentivizing that link to be amplified. And once there's that air of plausible deniability that where real Americans are carrying out those actions, whether it's protesting or sharing content, that's great for Russia, right? It's really hard to trace that back to a specific actor online. And all Russia has to do is, is really seed that discontent. It doesn't have to create it from scratch. So that that gets to something that I've honestly been struggling with since those indictments from the Mueller team came down, describing Americans who sort of inadvertently ended up participating in events that were in some way sort of seeded or supported by the Internet Research Agency. So from your conversations that you had with with folks who were sort of scooped up in that way, like, what is the problem with that? Right. It, it sounds like a silly question, but I do think it's an interesting one. Like, is the is the problem that people might have had their minds changed as a result of learning that the protest was was sponsored by a Russian ad spend? Is it that the people who heard and saw the protests, it might have affected them? Is it a sort of intrinsic concern about the the violation of autonomy to be sort of used in that way? Like, what is the, it, it makes me uncomfortable, but how do we put into words the core issue here? 
Yeah, I think the the ad spend is the issue here for me. I mean, I'm not going to tell anybody what they should and shouldn't be protesting about. And I'm certainly never going to say that a lame is flash mob is a bad thing. Right. Um, but, but I think, you know, we as, as Americans or anybody around the world, name a country, they have a right to be, you know, sure that the people who are involved in their political discourse are who they say they are. And that transparency, I think, is what we lose in this case. And we also, you know, are losing uh, control over not just the discourse, but again, the the ad spend um, is an issue because it's illegal to spend money on election related things. And there was no active election at that point. But again, elections are the inflection point in this very long game. How do we deal with it? I mean, I'm not going to create, you know, a, a FARA sort of. Uh, situation here where it would criminalize that sort of behavior for the protesters. Absolutely not. But I do think it's important to just raise awareness of, of the ways that, you know, bad actors are trying to infiltrate discourse. And we've just seen this uh, over the last couple of weeks with the takedown of the peace data operation, which was this internet research agency operation in its infancy uh, that hired freelancers, American freelance journalists, to write articles for a site that it then, again, targeted to the left using Facebook groups, uh, which I mentioned before. So in in and of itself, you know, there, there's nothing wrong with, with freelancers getting paid for their writing, for their work. But again, it's the authenticity of it and the fact that the ultimate goal is to undermine the democratic process and undermine Americans' confidence in the system other than that, yeah, I don't I don't fault any of these people, but I do think the awareness issue is important. I'm glad we should all just go on the record as definitely not being against show tunes. That's that's not the problem. <laughs> um, OK, so I, I think I just want to draw together a number of things that you've said. I think we've been dancing around this, but it would be helpful to be explicit about it. One of the things, the themes that comes through in your book is that it's important to identify the vulnerabilities in society in the first place when thinking about the disinformation threat and the most effective responses. So we are now, you know, heading up to the 2020 election. What are the concerns that you have in that regard looking forward over the next couple of weeks? Oh, I have a lot of concerns. Um, (laughs) uh, Okay, so clearly, um, there's a lot of disinformation around coronavirus still, and the safety about voting during the pandemic, not only the safety of mail-in balloting, which of course has been brought up by the president himself and uh, amplified these rumors of, of, of fraud and the fact that he believes China and Russia somehow can create uh, fraudulent ballots <laughs> that will swing the election, of which I have never heard something so ludicrous in my life. And I've seen some pretty crazy stuff when I've observed elections in places like Russia and Georgia, but let's leave it at that. And uh, But there's also the public, public safety component that I think some people are still trying to uh, confuse people about. Definitely still concerned about the endemic racism that we have here in the United States and the way that is being used by bad actors to manipulate discourse and inflame tensions. I'm worried about that potentially leading to violence. And I'm worried about the actual counting and certification of the results and the fact that the American public 
doesn't really understand how our election system works. A lot of people probably don't even know that we have a federal election system and that it's not all controlled from from one office somewhere in Washington. The fact that states are in charge um, and there's a different process in every state. All of that, all of that kind of opacity, if you will, uh, surrounding the actual nuts and bolts of our democracy is something that can absolutely be manipulated. So that's why, you know, in addition to things like media literacy, I am always advocating for civics as well, because so much of the disinformation that we have seen in 2016, in 2018, today has to do with the, again, the functioning of democracy and, and how in the dark some Americans are about how that works. And the fact that, you know, it, once you understand a little bit how it works, uh, it, it seems a lot less galaxy brain, deep state cabal because it is just very plain and simple and bureaucratic, as a matter of fact. So I think we, we really need to pull back the curtain on that. And in the work I've been doing, briefing election officials and things like that, I've, I've been encouraging them to communicate proactively with the public as much as they can about their jobs and the things that they're doing to secure the election, because the more that curtain is pulled back, the, the less room there is for the nasty stuff to grow in the dark. So before we wrap up, I want to want to ask you one more question. Go circling back to where we began with the with the title. So if we don't want to lose the information war, what does information peace look like or or can there be information peace? Like mm. is there an endpoint to this or is this just sort of a a state of perpetual battle that sort of keeps going back and forth and not losing is the best that can be hoped for? Yeah, well, I hope that we can get to information peace. <laughs> um, part of that obviously depends on our adversaries. But I think if you look at a nation like, you know, Sweden or Finland, again, Estonia, even, I wouldn't say that they feel as constantly under attack as the United States does right now. Um, there are fewer vulnerabilities that can be exploited by bad actors domestically and foreign. And, you know, they've got the system in, systems in place where citizens, you know, have a modicum of trust for the government and understand that their democratic system is something that they can count on. And I think that's what we need to get to. Even, you know, asking Putin to, to stop the Internet Research Agency might not even be within Putin's control anymore. I don't think he's sitting there, you know, having content meetings with them every week. And I certainly don't think he's apprised of what they're doing on a day to day basis. Uh, he probably has a little more control over the security services, but probably not much more. So it's not even that we need to just convince Putin to make this stop. It might, you know, the horse might have left that that barn a long time ago. And that being said, even though it's Russia right now and China right now, who knows who it will be tomorrow? I think there there is a lot to exploit in our information ecosystem. And we just need to do our best at home to make sure that people are aware that they have the tools to navigate what's going on, that we are investing in informing our citizens, whether that is, you know, through education or whether it is through investment in things like public media. All of that is really important. And if we look to our allies that have been dealing with this for a long time that are more resilient societies, I think they're a lot closer to information peace than we are. All right. Nina, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to the Arbiters of Truth the Lawfare Podcast's mini-series on disinformation. 
You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer for this episode was Ian Enright, and our producer is Jen Patja Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.